Agent 007 and the inventress Tracy de Vicenzo join forces to battle the evil Spectre organization in the treacherous Swiss Alps, but the group's powerful leader, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, is launching his most calamitous scheme yet, a germ warfare plot that could kill millions, making its premiere in London and opening in the UK and the USA on the 18th of December 1969. Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the sixth James Bond film, which cost $7 million to make and brought in $64.6 million at the worldwide box office. Starring the one and only George Lazenby and directed by Peter Hunt, the vital statistics are Conquests 3, Martinis 1, Kills 8, Bond James Bonds 2. Back in 1969, Variety said, It's a film of breakneck physical excitement and stunning visual attractions in which George Lazenby replaced Sean Connery as James Bond. Lazenby is pleasant, capable, and attractive in the role, but he suffers the inevitable comparison with Connery. He doesn't have the latter's physique, voice, and saturnine virile looks. So to discuss on Majesty's Secret Service, we have Ben Williams, Natalie Behensky, and Phil Nabil Jr. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, I'm Ben Williams. I write for mi6hq.com and uh, MI6 Confidential Magazine. Hello, I'm Natalie Bohensky. I have a pop culture podcast called Raven On. It started as a Game of Thrones podcast, but of course we've expanded to do lots of other pop culture things, including a big 2020 retrospective on the Bond films. I also have recaps of most of the films up to the Daniel Craig era on nataliebohensky.com. And I'm a huge James Bond fan. Very happy to be found by the James Bond and Friends team and invited back on. Hey, hey, Phil Nobile Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine. Um, psyched that my name came up in the rotation for this one because it's one of my favorites. Spoilers. Yeah. All right. Oh, sorry. So. Maybe it's one of my favorites. Maybe you'll change my mind. Who knows what can happen in the next 30 minutes? So the first category we kick off is the one with. So what is the motif that um, you imagine when you see this film? What would you hang your hat on? What would you put on the poster? If you close your eyes, what's the one thing you see or hear when you think about on a Majesty's Secret Service, how would you describe this to the casual moviegoer? So Majesty's is the one with... I'll say the one with all the skiing. Ben, do you want to throw one in? Uh, yeah, sorry, I thought Natalie was going to elaborate. Oh. <laughs> Look, mine is the one with the unhappy ending. Mm. So. Is it though? Is it is it the one with the unhappy ending? Well, I mean... Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but... I, you, but the other know, one has I this mean, one's unhappy ending, so I guess I guess um I I guess the way that both the other unhappy ending movies, uh, as in Casino Royale and uh, No Time to Die, are treated, they, they have a little epilogue on them so that they don't you know, that they kind of round out okay. the feeling. Whereas this is just like it just ends on an unhappy note, and I think and it's a hard. blaring James Bond theme. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's to me that's why what one of the things that makes it very different. Mm. Okay, I'll go with the one with out Sean Connery, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and and you know that's an that's an obvious one, but we're we're gonna um a, a lot of a lot of what I think is worth talking about about this film is the the way it's the big fork in the road it's the big first fork in the road it breaks mm-hmm. the shrink wrap off of the idea that these were sean connery movies essentially um which i think in 1968 maybe cubby and harry weren't sure it was true or not uh and they had to find out and mm. so i think this is significant in in that uh it proved that the series didn't need the one star 
Right. Or maybe they, didn't do them, they didn't really do themselves any favor by putting Sean Connery is James Bond on the end of Twice Posters <laughs> today. They kind of no. dug themselves that hole, didn't they? You know, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback about those kinds of things. <laughs> but yeah, so to, to me, the, the, the lazenby of it all is what looms largest because it, it, it represents uh, the series go, you know, mutating into something else and, and, and letting, uh, Letting you know, Lazenby having to be the first body through the door. <laughs> he was a bit mm. of cannon fodder, but but broke the seal on the thing. Mm. Yeah, I was going to go with the one with the other fella. Oh, I wrote that down and I changed gears. Okay, so the Bond cocktail is the meat of this podcast. Um, the Bond formula has often been broken down into a series of ingredients. These could be teaser, titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond himself, action, locations, dialogue, and the catch-all style. Um, which of these ingredients do you think is particularly important to the Honor Majesty's Secret Service and why it could be a positive or a negative? So who wants to pick an ingredient to discuss? Um, I'll jump in uh, and say one of the things I love about Majesties is the dialogue. Sorry for anyone else who picked that. Um, it's you know, it's really well written. One, um, I should say just the whole script is really well written and it is probably one of the more, more sort of faithful, if not the most faithful adaptation from Fleming. Um, and also it's just, it's just peppered with really nice kind of, um, I don't know, it's just like there's, there's a, a, a theatricalness to some of the some of the dialogue which i think is you know it's light it's playful it's funny um it's engaging and witty um as well and i and i think um it's one of the more straight up witty kind of uh, bond films and um i i I think that's it's a standout because that wit is different from any of the other films kind of humor so it's, it's got its own kind of distinct style to it i think so yeah that's what i'd say i never would have guessed that somebody would have picked <laughs> dialogue out of this one so natalie do you want to jump in with one i i would like to jump in with the key ingredient of 60s fashion uh, I mm. feel like of all the Bond films, this one was the most 60s, coming as it did at the end of 69, which is when, you know, the 60s as we know it had really formed. Diana Rigg wears just a series of increasingly outrageous and beautiful 60s peak fashion. And funnily enough, my mother was a young woman in London at this time. Uh, she grew mm. up in Ireland but moved to London to to work and she was a young, hip and happening 60s babe and I sort of see Diana Rigg and what she wears in this film with the miniskirts and the boots and the uh, the colours and I, for some reason, she reminds me of my mum as, as a young woman. So that's a bit of a sentimental thing for me. But, yeah, I think the fashion is pretty iconic in this movie, including what George Lazenby wears as well. Yeah, so controversially, of course, he goes full kilt. In yes. This film, um, which was a trivia answer on one of our quizzes um, a couple of years ago. Oh, was it? That's yes. Great. Uh, as to the costumes least appreciated by the audience. <laughs> but the question is, what was he wearing under the kilt when he filmed? Well, didn't she? Doesn't she giggle about it? Doesn't the 
she go, "Oh, it's true." <laughs> Would and the uh, the Im- Im- implication is that he's you know commando under there. It's very cold at that up there, though. I I, I do wonder whether <laughs> whether the kilt was the smart choice <laughs> on top of the mountain. Well, Lazenby's bond was the sort of himbo bond, wasn't he? You know, mm. he wasn't the uh, the smartest uh, <laughs> incarnation Oof. of our gentleman spy. No, that's true. What do you think of Lazenby's outfits, other than the kilt, Natalie? Ah, uh, look from memory, he wears a series of very charming blazers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's quite dapper. I think I read that he to get into the or to try and get the role, he actually stole a suit that had been made. Well, he didn't steal it; he bought it. But uh, he went to Sean Connery's tailor, and yeah. uh, there was an un- unclaimed suit for Connery, and so he bought it and wore it around to get the role. I admire that chutzpah. Um, but yeah, the the wedding scene where he's in like the full ruffled shirt or was that the opening scene where he's in the ruffled shirt that's in the casino for sure i think it might Mm, be in both yeah yeah basically ruffles on tuxedo shirts that was a moment in fashion time and i say bring it back bring back the ruffles yeah yeah absolutely flares yeah the before flares let's do the ruffles again and the um and the fact that it is so beautifully fitted to him you know it is just there's no um, there's no sag or, or anything to that shirt. It's it's tighter than one of Craig's suits, and you can see that the hair. You can see that beautiful, the beautiful Australian chest hair, just you know <laughs> straining against the white cotton. <laughs> I understand that that's mandatory in Australia. Is that true, Natalie? Yeah. Well, when shirts are required, um, you are supposed to have. Well, actually, you know this. Obsession with hairlessness in men now. I suspect you probably couldn't do the the big chest rug as much as you used to be able to. <laughs> uh, but from from looking back at photos from Australia of this period, particularly in the seventies, it was a very hairy time in Australia. But uh, yeah, I, I uh, he wears turtlenecks at some points too. I think in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's very. It's you know, it's as I say, it's sixties. It's it's kind of. I guess a bit of what Austin Powers uh, wears is maybe sort of taken from the Lazenby sure. look. And how quickly the 60s went off, because two years later and Diamonds of Forever came out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I, I think um, Dilson John still looks a bit 60s in that. You know that thing where decades, they don't really end until – right. A few years into the new decade, so where we are now in 2022, and particularly with COVID, we're kind of just wrapping up the end of the of the teens. So now we're into our proper 20s flapper rejigged era. You know, so I'm looking forward to seeing what the fashions will be like the rest of this decade. When people aren't on Zoom anymore, they have to buy pants. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we don't need. Maybe we don't need to do anything. I've become used to not wearing pants. It's it's been a Great Maybe flares leap. have already come back. It's just that nobody's seen anybody's legs <laughs> for two right. years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we're putting you under style because uh, for that one, mm. Natalie. So, yes. um, Phil, what did you have for the uh, ingredients list? For for my ingredient, although it's not one of your categories, interestingly enough, but to me, I've got to go with the director, which is Peter Hunt. Um, 
who I I bang the drum of Peter Hunt uh, often about him being crucial to the early success of the films and to that they finally let him off the chain and let him direct one and he goes for it like this is this is maybe and I know that people are going to disagree because everyone the bond you grew up with is your bond but I think looking back at these more or less objectively this is the last time that this franchise for many many years feels like you know the the hip new thing and I think in the very next film it's your dad's franchise mm. as soon mm. as Connery shows up full of ear hair and um, <laughs> walking through walking through a Las Vegas casino where old ladies are jerking off slot machines I think oh <laughs> I think that the 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 vicarious world of 007 sort of ends for a hot minute here in this movie. And I think that's a lot of that is about Peter Hunt. You know, people talk about Terrence Young being the guy who sort of birthed Bond, but Peter Hunt like felt it. His, his, his energy brought something to these movies that makes me profoundly sad that for whatever reason, he is no longer involved after this, uh, you know, after editing, you know, the first five, five, five films and then directing this one that he's gone. It's yeah. just, it's a bummer. Yeah. And, and I think you're, to, just to add to that, Phil, if I may, um, you know his his editing style was was such a huge part of of those Connery films, and um, I know we've mentioned this before, but definitely saved um, some of the more nonsensical stuff um, from something yeah. like uh, Thunderball. You know, trying to stitch all of that stuff together and, and keep it cohesive. I mean, he did, he did such an amazing job on that. And so to be kind of let off the reins for this one, Mm. um, oddly it's got my least favorite edit in the, um, in the series, I think, which is, you know, like the, the timer doesn't go off uh, on, on the second, but that said, um, and I know that you, you know, we've talked about this before, Phil, but like some of the little um, techniques, like being able to place uh, when Bond's looking out the window and he's, Love you that know, moment. he's thinking back and you thinking get that, about it. Yeah. The, the, the avalanche on the, on the reflection of, of M's office. And that, that stuff is, is, it was a sort of a one and done for, for kind of that experimentalism in Bond films. And, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen more kind of interesting stuff being done. Yeah, I saw you see them sort of play with it here and there, like the the weird Microsoft touchscreen of Quantum of Solace is sort of on the windshield mm. when Daniel Craig is driving, and to me that felt like a very pointed sort of callback to that that sort of anything goes style that Peter Hunt had done, or even in No Time to Die when it's one shot, you see him pull the the sheet off and it pans to the other side right. of the car, and, and it's like an unbroken shot. And it's to a 2022 audience, it's almost confusing. But like, if you kind of feel the Bond DNA of it all, you're like, oh, that's a, that's some Peter Hunt bullshit that they're just doing there in that one. Um, but yeah, he's he's his playfulness and his experimentation, and I think I called it before his punk rock sort of sensibility about editing, just kind of goes away. And then the movies become these like laid back hangout films afterwards. Right. What I think particularly sad is because of you know, what happened with the, the fallout of this production. Um, Hunt went into the wilderness for a bit. I mean, he did a couple of TV episodes in the early 70s, and it wasn't until 74, five years later, that he did gold with 
Roger wow. Moore and then Shadow of the Devil with Roger Moore. You know, and then he did a couple other movies. But that that was pretty much it. It was a, I mean, it was almost a career ender. This mm. one. And he's and it's sad because he's been. I I don't remember when he passed away exactly, but I do think it was largely after he passed that he's been sort of vindicated in that. Uh, you know, this yeah. this film is sort of the the Rosetta Stone almost of of yeah. of the whole Craig run. Um, he passed away in August 20, 2002, so he, he didn't get see done. He didn't get see done <laughs> the day, and he missed. Oh, thank God! Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> still this. I would be curious as to know what he would have thought about No Time to Die. But yeah, mm. vindication for sure. Twenty years later, after he passed. Mm. So my attempts to have a structure to this podcast are already falling uh, away at the sides. Um, so the next category was, uh, or is, underappreciated element. This might be tricky for this film because it's been very uh, meticulously analyzed, but what thing, big or very, very small, would you like to bring to people's attention about On a Magic Secret Service next time they watch it? May I go first? Go for it. Because I don't know that this is an underappreciated thing, but I just really want to highlight it as something that makes me smile every time, uh, is when uh, George Lazenby does a commando slide firing his machine gun mm-hmm. into the lair. Mm. <laughs> uh, I, have a, a, I have it in GIF form and I'll just watch it and it makes me smile every time. It's just such a great, like Sean Connery never commando skidded on the ice into the bad guy's lair. Like that's something that Connery never did. So kudos to Lazenby. It's one of those iconic moments that's often in the clip reels. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's so like. It can't it, be it, denied. It, it cannot be denied, it, but it's, it's, it's not so ridiculous that you can't see it happening, but it still sort of fills that wonderful James Bondness of being a superhero, you know, of being a bit superhuman. Uh, because I'm not sure how anybody does that. Well, it's also nicely juxtaposed, isn't it, with between his um, Hillary Bray character earlier on, who's having mm. difficulty standing upright when they're doing the the curling, right? So he's, you know, he's he's barely keeping his balance there on exactly the same place that he is able to just slide down, firing his sterling. So yeah, yeah. it's impressive. So that's that's the bit that always just makes me smile and I uh, you know punch the sky kind of moment. But as as you say, it might be already very well appreciated. <laughs> oh, and one more, sorry, one more. Yes, George Lazenby reading a Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just delightful, just delightful. You never saw Sean Connery look. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He does too, doesn't he? Takes off with it. Um, I thought that was quite. Uh, quite delightful too. Uh, Phil, you can shoot. Uh, okay, so this underappreciated element might be my imagination, but whatever. Um, it occurred to me on a, on a, a more or less recent watch that the, the opening theme music seemed almost like a, an attempt at a reset in, in the way that the James Bond theme plays without lyrics over Dr. No. It almost feels like they're trying to give Lazenby his own Bond theme with mm. the opening ah. music. And then you sort of, you know, like it, <sighs> later on, like in Live and Let Die, Moore has his own refrain in that film. 
and, mm-hmm. and and it doesn't hardly ever lean on the James Bond theme. In this movie, unless I'm misremembering, I don't think that the James Bond theme plays in this movie until the the raid on on Peace Gloria. Um, but it, it felt like they were trying to give him his own identity, his own branding. And I felt it again, like in Casino Royale, to some degree, with that that David Arnold, you know my name, refrain playing yes. over the action beats. Like this is this Bond's theme, and I I wish that they had sort of the confidence. Uh, or the temerity to lean into that a little bit more. Yeah, save them cutting checks to Monty Norman, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. And you um, know I love Monty Norman. <laughs> friend, uh, big, <laughs> we're big fans of him on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. So do you think then that if Lazenby did pull a second or third movie, they would have used those refrains for his character um, doing stuff rather than just leaning on the Bond theme? Like, I wonder. I mean, it... it they don't tend to, yeah. do they? Like you well, don't hear the living Barry with dying music. Have, Barry might have scored them, right? I mean, would he have? Oh, okay, right. Would he? Would he have recycled his own material? He never did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he did commit to to a melody uh, per film. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, the View to a Kill music is in the whole movie of View to a Kill, but. Um, and and may, again, maybe I said it's my imagination because it, it's it's walled off uh, until 2022, by the way, when it's strip mined uh, yeah. for someone else's pathos. Um, that that this Lazenby owned that theme, and I think that's really interesting that he kind of has his own James Bond theme, and, and not hardly any of the others can make that claim. And it is a corker. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I don't know yeah, about you guys. Awesome. But that's one of the ones I like to you know just crank on the car radio if I'm driving and need to feel motivated. Uh, particularly the remix that, um, gosh, Propellerheads did a remix. Yes. yes. Yeah. So good. So very good. Uh, you know, really sometimes that I like to drive the... like I'm James well, Bond. That's... Don't forget, they plundered it for Tomorrow Never Dies, didn't they? Back... Yeah. It's like a the super propeller... hyped up kind of version of it, but it's there. Yeah. yeah it was the Propellerheads remix was a big part of the Tomorrow Never Dies promotion back mm-hmm. in the day. Is that that old now? Oh my god! Poor Lazenby's getting just stolen left, right, and center. <laughs> no respect. He's the Rodney Dangerfield of the Bonds. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's interesting what what Phil just said, though. Like, I I'd never considered it. Before. I genuinely hadn't thought either. about it before, and I think no? it's a really good point. It's it's kind of like a, um, you know, a kickstart of of an almost like, a, yeah, like, cause they didn't know whether this was going to be an ongoing, like for them, they were thinking like, you know, seven, maybe seven more films. Right. Cause that's what they, the contract was supposed to be. Yeah. Mm. So, mm, right. The, yeah. It could have easily been a new, the new yeah. theme. Yeah. And don't forget, I mean, Barry did the 007 theme, right. And he brought that back in Moonraker. Right. right. So. Yep. Ooh, we have precedent. Do you want my unappreciated? Yes. Um, Okay, so one of the things that I think is is amazing about it is just this all of these um, coincidental elements coming together at the same time to make um, like Piz Gloria work. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I'm I'm sure a lot of Bond fans do know this, but some may not. But originally, um, Majesty's was was supposed to follow. Um, 
Oh God, I can't remember the film now. <laughs> um, but supposed to follow Goldfinger. Yeah, it's supposed to follow Goldfinger. But they they didn't. They and they were looking for locations to film it. Um, they looked at the Maginot Line. They looked at all sorts of of things, but they couldn't find anything that really, you know, purely uh, reflected Fleming's story. You know, um, and the idea that they put this filming off um, and they and then there just happened to be this. Resort. Well, it was also the McClory stuff which got in the way, but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but the idea that all of this, this, all of these confluences of these different things that kind of stopped the filming from happening, you know, and obviously with um, you know Sean leaving as well, the timing to get a physical location that actually matches something that Fleming completely made up um, out of mm. his own imagination, and then they just you know, it just happened to be built. Uh, although they had to help them build it and give them a little bit of extra funding, especially for the for the um, for the helipad. But essentially, that his glory is is what you what you what you read in the in the book, and to see it kind of come to life uh, is only because of all these weird coincidences of. Um, you know, people pulling out or lawsuits and all the rest. So it's kind of just, I think that's, uh, that's my unappreciated element anyway. It would have been interesting to see what they would have done had it not been right. I mean, it would have been um, model work. Sure. I mean, they, they're very, you know, they, they could have very easily convincingly sold it to us, you know, through that. But one of the things certainly at the time was just, they wanted things to be real as much as possible. So I think it's just, it's incredible that, that it happened that way. Well, I mean, they, they built a freaking volcano the movie before, right? So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cafe on top of a mountain, no problem. That's Which it. is weird that they didn't build a Japanese <laughs> castle by the sea. Anyway, <laughs> 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 all right, we're leaning into this next category, which is trivia. Can you share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? Mm. I'm going to say that Angela uh, Scholar. Uh, who mm. plays Ruby Bartlett is one of the few women to have also played another Bond woman. Um, she's you That's know right. in, in a in a Bond film. Uh, she's in Casino Royale uh, sixty seven, um, and she in the bath in the bathtub um, with with David Niven. And I don't know if many people know that, and maybe they do. I don't know. I'm maybe you brought it up when you did the watch. <laughs> Um, but um, if you did, I'm sorry I missed that one. But yeah, I, I I always find that a bit sort of strange to think that those they're the same two people. Con- considering Eon weren't too happy about Casino Royale six seven and shied away from really anybody that touched that movie, right? And considering the number of actresses available, I mean, maybe they just didn't realise. <laughs> yeah. Just like they didn't realize Lazy Me not been any movies before. You know. <laughs> Loads in Germany and Europe or wherever it was. I, speaking of uh, actresses in the film, I always love seeing Joanna Lumley as one of the girls in Blofeld's lair as part of his crazy plot. And she is I'm not sure is, Len- I'm, I'm sure is not trivia trivia to, to um, find Bond fans such as yourselves, but I think a lot of people probably wouldn't realize that Patsy from AbFab right. <laughs> was in a Bond movie. And she has not really embraced or lent into her Bond connection at all. No, she hasn't, has she? 
I, I think she compares a couple of IFP events, didn't she, Ben? Back in like 2008 or something. She did. And she did a, uh, yeah. Um, I think for the Fleming centenary, um, she, she did some uh, comparing and, and some reading as well, which was quite cool to, and I suppose that makes her another um, actress from a Bond movie who's also, I guess if she's read a role, read a part, that kind of makes her playing another character as well, doesn't it? So, hmm. um, yeah, interesting for that that fact as well. Yeah, she was opposite Toby Stevens in that, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, but she definitely seems to be leaning into the IFP kind of stuff versus oh, the movie. Yeah, de- more 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 the kind of the the literary stuff for sure. Um, although I, I have to say, even though that that the Fleming centenary was obviously an IFP thing, it it you know, did um, it did sort of definitely embrace the the movies as well? Yeah, that spectacular sneak preview of Quantum Soul. Those who are there will know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> Phil, what piece of trivia. trivia tickles you? <clears throat> Hot trivia for you about Honor Majesty's Secret Service. If you look at the dinner scene, you'll notice some canny cutting around Lazenby because. Apparently, Laser B, Laser B wouldn't stop talking with his mouth full of food. They just couldn't get him to stop. To, no, I'm, I'm lying. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> One day I'm going to get through the fake trivia and, and I thought and you were going to tell us he was putting potato salad in his kilt. <laughs> no, no, that was Jack Ward. You're getting confused. Um, I don't have a See, ton of honor as you serve. But here's, some, is, here's something I, I totally would have bought the not doing with his mouthful because I just would have assumed that was some terrible Antipodean, you know, lack of manners. That uh, I, if I'd gotten to the end with. of the bit, you all would have bought it. <laughs> it would go live on this thing, I and it would have ended up on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm working up my game. One of these days, by the time I'm, I'm we're talking about Moonraker or something, I'm going to have just a corker in here, a doozy. Mm. For you. What are you going to um, do? No. Phil, you've got to in, you've got to do an inception thing, right? Where you put this bit of trivia out, it gets onto on Wikipedia, Wikipedia first, and then by the t- <laughs> but when you have your bit of trivia said back to you, right at any point, then you know that you've incepted the trivia. <laughs> it's become um, yes. You know, I was gonna I was gonna share the morbid thing about. Uh, Ilsa Stepat, Irma Bunt right. dying, dying, and I, th- I thought she died before this movie came out, but I think she died after the movie came out. I think it was like a week after or something, wasn't it? Did she see it? Does anyone know if she saw it? It's always so interesting to me when you see somebody who's like barely made it to the end of the movie before dropping dead. You know, a yeah. Pedro Almendarez, and she died three days after the premiere. Oh, <sighs> wow! I hope she liked it. Wasn't that bad? <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, Miss Stepat, how was the film? <laughs> um, yeah, there's my trivia. When, when someone is sort of like unwell and, and does these movies and, and barely makes it to, to the thing coming out, it's always... I, I, I wasn't aware that, that she passed so soon after... I'm sorry I, you had to find out like this. Yeah, I, I just need a minute. Yeah. Okay. Like on a Wikipedia page, it says she was unable to reprise her role in Diamonds of Forever. Like, yeah, hell yeah, she was unable. <laughs> it's a hell of an understatement. <laughs> Unavailable. Well, according to this, she died in West Germany, um, in Berlin. So, what? Maybe didn't go to the premiere. Yeah, maybe not. Or she hopped on a train after the premiere. Mm. Right. It in. was a. It was a only English language role. Yeah. 
Wow. One and done. And interesting in that, like, she's one of the few villains slash henchmen to, like, make it to the end of a movie, too. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I prefer the light-hearted potato salad trivia. <laughs> I'll do better next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's uh, round George. this one up. George, George. Final verdict. So we're going to ask you each to put it in your top, middle, or bottom tier for Bond. And by bottom tier, we're not saying it's a bad movie. We're just saying it's maybe one that you watch the least. So is Honor Majesty's Secret Service top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier? And why, with your personal feelings, who wants to go first? I'll go. It's it's top tier for me because it's it's pure Fleming in its way. It's got a, an amazing score, as I touched upon. One, you know, one of the one of the best scores I think of the of the series. Uh, it feels it's the last one to feel really first generation, even though it's technically not first generation. It feels like first generation Bond to mm. me. And um, for better or worse, the 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 impact of it is only you know now just being sort of appreciated, and and it's it's become this thing that they go back to, like going back to like the, one of the Spectre trailers leaned into the score. Uh, yes, it or, did. Oh shit! That's three films then. Mm. Yeah, but not in the actual film Spectre, but but in the trailer. I remember we all lost our mind that when that trailer dropped, that it was yes. playing the On Her Majesty score. Yeah, when uh, the Aston Martin <clears throat> goes down the staircase. <laughs> yep. And um, I love that it's a one and done. I love a unicorn. You know what I mean? Uh, I had at least to be done two or three. I maybe wouldn't love this one as much. It might dilute it, but that it's the only one that's sort of playing this particular song is something really special to me. Good answer. Uh, Natalie, as a honorary Australian. I, yeah, definitely. As part of our, you know, retrospective on James Bond, I hadn't watched this one for a long time and was, you know, really delighted by how much more I appreciated it um, coming back to it. And I think when we talked about it on our podcast, um, we mentioned that I think Christopher Nolan was very inspired by this film. Yeah, uh, for Inception, a lot of the skiing elements, the snow, the it's white. just getting plundered right, left, and center, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's it's definitely got a lot of, and as you say, the director has been justified, you know, in how he did this because I think it's a really strong entry. As you say, it's a standalone, so that makes it a really interesting piece of film history as well as Bond history. I think because that's um, you know franchises like Bond are very rare, and then to have something like this as part of that is also unfair. Obviously, the fact that an Australian played James Bond, a little bit of uh, national pride there. Um, and he's, you know, he's not bad. He's not Connery. Of course he's not Connery. And perhaps he's not, you know, maybe another film or two he might have settled in and grown into the role a bit or, or developed into it. Who knows? But I don't think he's terrible. Um, you know, he's watchable enough. And also he's surrounded by really great people like Telly Savalas mm-hmm. and, of course, Diana Rigg, who I've already mentioned. She's just knocks it out of the park in this film. She's, you know, right up there in, in you know, top three Bond girls for me. So, um, yeah, I put it – I think it ends up being like at the very <laughs> – splitting hairs, I know, but like at the very bottom of the top or the top of the middle is where it ends up for me. <laughs> Okay. And that's just because of sentimental reasons, normally with all the other Bond films that I love. Right. But I can definitely appreciate this film uh, as, a, as, a, as a fairly strong piece of filmmaking and definitely a, I think the Daniel Craig films owe a lot to it, particularly, you know, the most recent one. 
the most recent one. Uh, but yeah, so, um, I, uh, you, know, that was, you know, of all the movies they chose to call back to, they chose to call back to this one, and that says a lot for its place in the, you know, in the in the yes, um, what's the word? Place in the chamber of history? No. There's a pantheon. The canon? pantheon. Thank you. The pantheon. The Bond pantheon is the word I was looking for. Parthenon. Parthenon. <laughs> pantheon. Parthenon. Uh, whatever the word is, you know what I'm saying. It's uh, it's it's yes. the, that's that's the re- as soon as like I I can't believe my brain didn't tick sooner when they first called. You know, we have all the time in the world. In so uh, so <laughs> no time to die. Like I should have clicked when they said that the first time. Uh, and then I, because I, 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 I clocked it as the reference, and I was like, "Oh, reference!" But I didn't then follow on with like, "Oh, someone might die." Right. <laughs> and if if I did, I guess I was probably thinking Madeline might die, uh, Madeline Swan, um, which you know, cool. Uh, <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know that's really mean, but uh, you know, um, but I wish I'd clocked it earlier and thought, "Well, hang on, could they could they kill Bond?" Uh, yeah, I, that. I, I I clocked that way too late, that far later than I should have. Um, but it does, yeah, it definitely means something. They've never called back to Goldfinger, you know. Daniel Craig would never call back to Moonraker. <coughs> Remember Sorry. that time I went to space? Madeline Swan, have I ever told you about that time I went to space? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I've already uh, been. So, I've already been. <laughs> yeah. So, to- like, definitely bottom of the top. Sphere for for Bond for me. Okay, thank. All right, Benjamin. Well, those that know me know that this is uh, basically on a rotating one or two with Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, that's great. And um, it, you know, it depends it's on Casino what... Royale two thousand six, right? Yes, two thousand six. <laughs> and, and this and this depends on a, you, you know whatever mood I particularly am in on that on that day but I, I kind of put them in sort of joint first but um that said um i i i think um at this current moment in time it is is occupying the the top spot um and for a lot of the reasons that that phil brought up actually i mean partly there is this capsule of it being this um uh, as you call it a one and done but i i like this this kind of idea that it's a contained universe for him and that character and that story arc um that it is an emotional ride that you go on um that bond is uh different at the beginning of the movie than he is at the end of the movie he has um you know he has a character arc in that um as natalie pointed out um you know the performances are, are, are fantastic particularly from diana rig um and telly savalis and uh, in the, i mean the whole cast really is is uh first rate and i think that's partly yes obviously you get the best people around you know a, a, a new and untried actor to, to you know kind of fill that up and bring him up and i think actually um they they did help to elevate his performance um, I don't think his performance is bad. In fact, one of the things that I was going to uh, mention was that a lot of his lines are ADR and added on um, afterwards. Uh, things like, oh, North of the Caspian. And, you know, 
you've no idea how much it's stacking up. All of that kind of stuff, all those kind of like playful, almost Roger Moore-esque quotes, they were all added in afterwards. And what you would have originally had when he has the fight in the hotel room is him just taking, like Connery did with the grape, taking a bite of caviar and walking out, which I think actually, you know, changing those things made him a slightly more kind of comedic, Moore-esque, light-hearted one mm. than, you know, maybe the original intention was to kind of make him a little harder, more brutal. Um but I mean, I think overall his performance is great. His he he's able to show weakness and vulnerability with with um, you know with Tracy, um, and yeah, if, that chemistry if I just is fantastic. Add to what you're add to what you're saying. I can't imagine Connery crying. No, over like I can't I imagine think Connery could have done the um, ice rink scene. Uh, you know, like, I don't think he could have. I mean, there's a similar moment in Thunderball where he's being chased, you know, in um, by by Fiona, and you you right. do kind of wonder a little bit how he's going to get out of this. But you never really get a sense that he's not going to. Whereas with Lazenby, there is a genuine like, how are you getting out of this? You you're outnumbered, and you know this is you know you're unarmed. This is a very difficult situation, and I think. That's one of the strengths that Majesty's has is that it has a vulnerable yeah. human bond at its at its core, um, and then we are left with that vulnerable person, you know. And we aren't we we aren't sort of promised this idea that it'll all get better in the end, or that it even has a happy ending. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of and and to touch just what on on um, Phil said, how Fleming this is, you know. It's it in in um in oh, fuck sorry i'm having a i'm having a stroke <laughs> oh, no. I'm, smelling, I'm smelling toast <laughs> um, but you, you know in casino royale the the novel um that there, there is that ending of of um where bond is basically hospitalized and you, you know it, it it's not a again it's not a happy ending and i think this is the closest to that idea uh, that was presented in the in Casino Royale, the novel, that it doesn't always work out for the good guys. They don't always ride right. off into the sunset. So I, I just think it is a, a fantastic film. It's a great period film, as Natalie mentioned before, with some great costuming and um, the music is incredible. Um, yeah, I, I, the editing, the the set design the production design all of the stuff that comes together to make this really for me top tier bond stuff I'd like to point out lazenby was 29 mm. when he made this yeah. movie and connery when he was 29 was doing tv work and tarzan's greatest adventure <laughs> so, blackface in that film by the way yeah, <laughs> yeah but the, the, my point was but connery had also had limited experience five years of credits before that point <clears throat> Right. Whereas Lazenby had a big fat zero. Yeah. So interesting. I think yeah. I think he you know, did considerably well under the right tutelage from the people that were around him. He had a, such a good cast and such a, um, a tried and seasoned crew as well. Plus, you've got a, a you know an editor who can cut round his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> just chewing. Yeah, just 
just quite you know, beyond the vulnerable stuff you mentioned, Ben. I, I also, <clears throat> when people talk about, oh, if only this had Connery in it, I, I think Connery would have struggled with the lighter stuff. I don't think Connery got comfortable enough in his skin to be sort of silly until right. about like maybe the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? You know, so where right. he plays playing against type shtick at the dinner table. He would, yeah, to be yeah. to be a twenty nine year old and take the piss out of yourself in your in your first acting role and it being that big an acting role is it, it's impressive yeah so we should not be scared if the next james bond is 29 no um, unless it's somebody awful <laughs> this henry cavill jr <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay so thank you phil natalie and ben um on a Majesty secret service if you're listening to this podcast contemporaneously we'll be back in uk cinemas this weekend um middle oh, of may jealous mm. and uh Yes, fantastic film to see on the big screen. Go take a non-Bun fan with you and maybe convert them. And maybe they'll be like, oh, yeah, I like the music. Or maybe they'll be like my wife and say, ugh. Convert a a new fan with this one. um, Or die trying. Or die trying, (laughs) yes. And see you next week for Diamonds of Forever. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.